so stupid, he comes across in front of me every single time he ever takes. Where does he want me to go off the track? No! Stop talking to me in the braking zone! Okay, what in the hell is going on, Formula One? Let's roll the titles, it's Motorsport 101. <laughs> I, I, I don't even know where to start with this one um, on this one I've got to be honest with you I'm not the best intro to a podcast maker in the, as, an, as a podcaster in the first place I'm not the best with intros as it is but um, I'm going to be honest with you here this one this is a bit of a behind the scenes factoid we're just totally going to wing this episode because holy shit we've had three enormous breaking news stories in the last three or so hours and we originally taped shows on Monday. Because of Skype technical problems, we didn't actually record this on Monday. We're recording this now on March 23rd on Wednesday. And it might be the best thing that could have possibly happened to the show because holy shit, have we got a lot to talk about. Um, first of all, let me introduce my co-host as always. First up in the blue corner, Mr. Adam Johnson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and um, I kind of feel like we're in, you know that bit in Terminator 2, Judgment Day, when we see the future post-Skynet with the yeah. apocalyptic wasteland spreading out in front of us? I kind of feel like that's us right now, observing the F1 community. Um, and also, just to follow up on what Dre said, we are using a new bit of kit today because Skype can just go, go... Uh, go die a fire. Yeah, go die in a fire. Um, how it's not been responsible for my murder at the hands of Dre, I'm not entirely sure, but we did manage to get some replacement software working. This is our first time using it. We tested it thoroughly 15 minutes before recording. So, <laughs> so far, all working good. Cross your fingers that uh, Discord comes through for us. So, yes, this is, this is going to be fun. This is going to be fun. Yeah, it's looking great on our end so far, so we can't complain. And in the red corner is the voice of America himself, Mr. Ryan King. Hello, sir. Uh, wait, just give me a second. I, I got to turn off my IndyCar YouTube feed because I'm watching a race right now. <laughs> <laughs> Real professional, King. <laughs> Hang on, you're watching a race for free? <laughs> you monster. I think you can see where this is going, gentlemen. Um, <laughs> Maybe a little okay. bit. Okay, so let's cut to the chase. The list of things on the show, like, it was dramatically different as of about four hours ago. We basically just but ripped it up and we, set it on fire. Yeah, we, yeah it, it's now a, a nuclear holocaust, basically, because <laughs> now it's basically a totally different list. Um, we're talking about Sky as they announced their decision literally an hour ago that they're going to air all races exclusively from 2019 onwards. In we'll the be UK. talking about, yeah, in the UK at least. We'll be talking about the GPDA statement on the F1 decision making process. We'll be talking about the Australian Grand Prix, its qualifying fiasco, and now the new breaking news story about they're going to tweak the format as opposed to get rid of it. Um, so that's going to be a big story. We're going to be talking about all the positive stuff from, from Australia, like the tyre strategy actually working the not so positive of the Alonso Esteban Gutierrez crash has scoring points Max Verstappen blowing his lid etc etc and we may or may not talk about MotoGP in Qatar we may save that till next week because who knows how long this first segment is going to go on for holy crap um, so there's no guarantee that, that, that I'm going to talk about MotoGP here I'm going to have to call an audible on that one because 
boy. Um, like I said, the entire plans for this episode changed about an hour ago, and again, I feel like I, we're like a SWAT like, team that has been called into a like a building under siege right now. Yeah, it's just all I, the major I, issues in F one. F one is just kicking off majorly, and we're at the front doors about to throw stun grenades and storm the front. Yeah, like I deliberately wanted this to be as early a recording as possible because I wanted our responses and reactions to be as genuine as possible for this because yeah. I feel like it would make a better show than maybe waiting a day and then, you know, sleeping on it and thinking like that. I mean, let's let's cut to the chase. First up, leading the way, was announced again, literally 6.04 p.m. according to the skysports.com website in the F1 section. And the headline, Sky Sports to show every F1 race live from 2019 to 2024. I will read a little bit of the statement. Sky Sports has extended its partnership with Formula One to remain the home of F1 in the UK and Ireland until 2024. As part of the new deal, Sky has agreed a new broadcast partnership with Formula One management, strengthening its position as the home of sports, offering unrivaled choice for fans. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, as, Stop as it, Sky! Saying. You're killing us. Yeah, it's Sky Sports' new partnership with Formula One exclusive. Sky Sports will be the home of Formula One in the UK and Ireland from 2019 to 2024, offering live coverage of every Grand Prix. Free to air, the British Grand Prix, together with highlights of all other races and qualifying sessions, will be shown on a free to air basis. Sky Sports Mix. Additionally, at least two other prime time live races a season will be offered on the soon to be launched Sky Sports Mix channel, along with other F1 content. Ultra HD. For the first time, every race starting with the 2017 championship will be shown in the stunning picture quality of ultra high definition via Sky Q, the next generation home entertainment system. Sky Sports F1 will continue to be the only place to watch Grand Prix weekends live for the next three seasons in the UK, with 21 races live in 2016, beginning with last weekend's Rolex Australian Grand Prix. The new agreement builds on the success of Sky Sports F1 since the launch of the award-winning channel in 2012. More than 13 million viewers have already enjoyed its live coverage with many more following F1 across Sky Sports digital outlets. One more bing from Bernie, CEO of the Formula One group, saying, I'm delighted that we will continue to work together. Sky's commitment to the sport and standard of coverage is second to none. Fellas, holy shit. Um, (laughs) I just... As you can imagine, the reaction to this news, obviously we follow a lot of British F1 fans in this country, has been nothing short of nuclear. It's been um, toxic. It's been ridiculous. I, I was I was on my I was on the phone on my bus home from work and everybody was kicking up a stink about this one and it's hard to even begin where to start with this, but initial impressions on my end is that this is an awful deal for F1 fans. I mean, I mean, it's it's understandable in in context why this has happened. I, I mean, think we could all see it coming, couldn't we? Yes, I know. Like I know, I saw it coming. I know you guys saw it coming. I know friend of the show, Lewis Sudderby, over on Bike Live said just tweeted himself that it was only going to be a matter of time, read really, that before Sky before you know they would turn the screw on something like this and you know really try and shut out any and all competition. And as soon what- as the joint deal back in 2011 was announced, and BBC went from being the exclusive um, broadcaster to a sort of half deal, it really stunk of 
BBC are only keeping hold of their paltry amount of coverage. They're doing the least amount to fulfil the um, agreement with the the Concord Agreement, mm. I believe it was, to to have F1 at least on some free-to-air in some capacity. And it always felt like that was literally just enough to satisfy that agreement. And if Sky could just do it all themselves, they would. And as I say, we could kind of predict this coming Um and it's it's kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, we kind of knew this would happen one day, but still, it kind of sucks considering that from 2019, it'll be the first time that Formula One won't be on free-to-air full-time in really any capacity, bar this, you know, British Grand Prix and a few of the token other things, since 1977. Mm. That was the last time that Formula One really wasn't on live free-to-air television. And it wasn't on TV, period, before that. Exactly, yeah. So this is, a this is for many people, you know, for, for some, you know, and, and I remember this when the, um, when the deal was announced that it would be going to Sky in 2012. There was a huge backlash against it, but there were a lot of people saying, oh, well, you know, you pay for what you get, you know, true fans would pay anything to support it. I'm like, no, that just, that just sounds like someone who's, you know, which side of my face do you want to stamp on because I'm such a good little fan? It, it didn't, I didn't like that. And it's, honestly, it's, 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 yeah, it's, sorry, it's wishful thinking. I mean, we don't live in a society where we all, we have all this disposable income anymore. And yeah. like we are living in a, in a new age, the internet is getting bigger and bigger year to year. Like we're, we're finding what I like to call totally legal sources. Mm. To Which are only going to increase with this deal. Let's be real. Of course. Of course absolutely. I mean, why would you ever want to pay £30 for Sky Sports when you can well, watch whatever game you want on the internet for free if you know what you're doing? Between this and the statement from the Conservative MP about closing the, in inverted commas, loophole about watching BBC iPlayer for free, are students going to be able to watch anything legally now? <laughs> Let's be real. Except for Netflix, what? maybe. They'll be prepared to pay that. But otherwise, I, I don't see it. 130 whatever it is for a license fee to watch iPlayer to watch Doctor Who reruns. And then 40 <laughs> quid or nicking their parents' Sky Sports login. This is... I mean, that's the big thing about it. Like, it's... You know, for some people, they're not prepared to pay it out of principle. And that's right. fair enough. But for many, including, I'm pretty sure, us in this conversation, it's a physical deal. Like, mm. don't don't... People are going to be put in the situation where their love of the sport is going to go alongside food, bills, rent, you know, these sort of basic things. And it's like, can you justify? I mean, the cost is pretty high anyway, considering what you're getting into with Formula One. It's not like football right. where, you know, the sheer amount of it means that, hey, you can probably justify it because there's games every weekend. There's midweek games. There's other games. There's preseason friendlies. Everything's on there. Formula One, you're basically 21 weekends of a year is what you're paying for. And that's likely to go up with this deal. When Sky Sports become the exclusives, hey, there's going to be no one else in town to challenge them. So they can charge literally what they want. They're the only circus in town. And I don't know, like the biggest thing for me, and this is backed up by by evidence around, you know, around the world. The, the big thing that's going to take a hit here is the viewing figures. And unquestionably so. The big thing with free-to-air television is that it is exposure like nothing else. And when Formula One moved in 2012 uh if i remember rightly that the the viewing figures were literally went down by about two-thirds on sky f1 and as far as i know they haven't improved and it was exactly the same in australia when the v8 supercars moved from free to air to the foxtel subscription service 
their viewing figures absolutely just plunged. They were literally getting sub 1 million on quite a few of their broadcasts when they were getting healthy 5, 6 plus million viewership in 2014. And they're still taking the hit for that. Granted, you know, Foxtel and in this case Sky are clearly pumping money into the sport. But overall, you know, motorsport, particularly sponsors, they get into motorsport for visibility. They want yeah. to know that their product is being watched and seen and their, you know, logos are being seen by as many people at any time as possible. This is going to hit that. This is going to impact it. And I don't know. This is, you know, is Formula One big enough to survive that? Probably because you can't really kill it with a stick. But it's going to leave a sour taste for a lot of people. This is this is not good. For the common man, this is not good. Yeah, Johnson, it's a pretty big stick because you're talking about potentially 2 million plus viewers because Channel 4 released their first TV ratings for the Australian Grand Prix today. And it was, they peaked at 2.7 million for the Channel 4 highlight package they released of the race. And it wasn't a live race. I think Bahrain will probably be a little bit more representative in a couple yeah. of weeks' time um, because of, obviously, it's their first live weekend. So, obviously, people will probably make more of an effort to tune in knowing it's live. Well, if and I also- remember rightly, this is just going off my memory. I remember reading at the time that at the peak of it being on BBC, back on BBC in around 2010, they would, I'm pretty sure they were getting near to 10 million per broadcast, yeah. certainly around eight or nine million. And as soon as it went to Sky F1, because, you know, as we've discussed, people can't physically get Sky F1. So, you know, it's not a case of people deliberately turning away. It's because they can't get it. It was down to around the two or three millions for live broadcasts. So they took a big hit in terms of raw viewership. If, if you're not if you're not a particularly big sports fan and you are only really maybe into F1 and not much else, you why would pay you pay for, for it? Yeah, you got to pay thirty pounds a month for it. That's three hundred and sixty pounds over a year. Like that is and a very, this. very hard thing to justify. And <laughs> consider this: you know, think about what you pay ten pounds a month for. Maybe you're prepared to pay ten pounds a month for Netflix, which has a huge library. Amazon Prime that's going to have a huge library now exclusive. WWE Network that has everything live on it, plus archives of everything, exclusive content. The lot. This is thirty pounds a month for not a huge amount in between the races let's be real they, they do no. the, some of the exclusive stuff in terms of the driver interviews behind the scenes stuff the the f1 show with natalie pinkham pinkham but even so 30 quid a month and possibly rising mm, this is difficult and going on a an, on another series i mean as i say we're talking about f1 we're talking about the top dogs around the world as i say are they big enough to be killed by viewing figures potentially but unlikely however domestically let's look at a series that has really proven the value of uh, free-to-air broadcast, and that's the British Touring Car Championship. In the mid-2000s, uh, they in the 1990s, during their peak, they were on BBC Grandstand with a sort of as-live coverage. They were sort of edited highlights just after the real race had happened. So it was almost live, and they were doing very well. Mid-2000s, they went off of free-to-air. They were on sort of, you know, the, the sub-channels. But in the last few years, certainly in the 2010s, they've been on ITV4, which has been on Freeview. So effectively, it's been free to air. And they've had a lockout of Sunday afternoons, you know, showing every support race, every touring car race, you know, it's been all there. Look at where the championship is now. They've just announced a record field for 2016. There's teams and drivers entering all the time. You can't tell me that being on free to air and picking up four, five, six million viewers every weekend they race hasn't helped that series. No. Um... Because it absolutely has. King, like, 
talk to me, man, on this one because I, I, I know it's different for you because obviously you're in the states and I know that the F1 is on NBC and whatnot, and it's, 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 it's hard. It's a hard one to fathom because. Me and you have both said them many times before. Like live sport is the last bastion of television, in my opinion. And like TV as we know it, I think is dying a slow death when it comes to the internet and you know one technology in 2016. But like putting F1 behind such an enormous paywall can't be a good thing, can it? <laughs> no, I mean it. Yes and no. Like yes, it it doesn't benefit the sponsors anyway but formula one management is not affected by how many people watch f1 they're affected by how much broadcasters pay to to show f1 on television and without a doubt this is a good move for them because like even over the past couple years i think the tv rights this year for f1 in the uk is about 55 million pounds and I th- and back in 2006 it was you know 30 mi- 30 million pounds so it's almost so yeah so it's it's almost doubled over the past 10 years yeah so basically the FOM isn't manipulated well like the ra- we talk about ratings the ratings is, is going to be the knock-on for the broadcaster because obviously that are paying for these rights as opposed to the FOM which are basically getting a flat fee to show F1 with that broadcaster for that season so obviously for the FOM, it's a great deal. For Sky, they're going to assume it's a great deal as long as the ratings are there. The the, the, the entity that takes the knock-on is going to be the fans here because now also, ultimately, you've got to make a choice. Do you want to pay £30 a month for the convenience of having Formula 1 in high def or maybe ultra high def on this new Sky Q-Box has been that? advertised lately as again that's going to be freaking expensive knowing what sky's like um whenever it releases something new when it comes to tech or do you go by the totally legal methods or do you go basically just saying you know what i can't do it i, I can only watch reruns that don't really matter so much and you let's know, be honest really... 30 quid for most people is a mobile phone bill yeah roughly i'd say yeah. so for the average person yeah yeah that's, that's a phone bill and that's something that's actually important um mm. you know so it's there's not much more to really say about this, really, besides holy shit. And like I said before, it's the last bastion of television f- for me is live sport. And there's always going to be a demand for live sport, especially the bigger ones like football in this country, like Formula One, like the rugby, et cetera, et cetera. And it's it's an enormous deal. It's 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 gonna it's gonna hurt. It's gonna take the fan of this one full force and gosh it's like like, sky better have a plan for expanding in f1 soon after this one because they again they've now got to take the hit when it comes to tv rights and whatnot um because they've paid more and more for this coverage and you know i don't see where the fans are going to come from and i think it was a friend of mine chen on twitter that made a very good point if you're a new fan and you want to make the investment into formula one to watch it live because there's no alternative to watching it live i mean you're not going to tune into a sport to see it pre-taped and watched a week later no one's gonna do that having dodged twitter for spoilers exactly that's the kind of era we live in so we want it now so to watch it live you're gonna pay an enormous amount of money even if you go down the now tv route and pay for a day pass like an f1 race that's eight quid 
So you're looking at 21 times eight. That's a 168 quid for the year to watch every F1 race live, even if you're going by the day pass method on Now TV. It's an enormous amount of money for the and average person. And on Sky person. Sports, that's, that's like that's... 360 quid a year. Yeah, it's an enormous deal, and it's only going to get bigger. I feel like you said it's only going to get bigger in time once uh, once Sky, have, you know, in 2019, when they announced they're the biggest deal. Like, like Sky's not going to drop prices. Of course they're not. They're a business. They're going to keep growing. You know, they're never going to drop prices, Not especially not an entity as big as that. Hmm. Sure, they'll offer deals every once in a while. They try and get people through the door, but ultimately a customer is a customer. And, you know, once, once you're in, it's very hard to walk out from a Sky deal or things like that because they'll try and convince you to stick around, like Sam said, my parents. Mm. on many occasions so yeah um not much to much much more to really say on that but like i think the biggest um hamper for me as a fan when it comes to this is that the internet's going to get completely ignored until 2019 uh, after this like there's like there is no chance the internet ever gets some kind of exclusive streaming deal for formula one or you know like a wwe network-esque or a you know netflix-esque kind of deal um which i think is a I, shame I, I think people were hoping that they yeah. would gradually move in That's that direction but then again this is formula one who historically have been pretty slow to adapt and i think this kind of proves it we didn't have we, we we didn't even have HD on board until this season, for God's sake. This season, like, yeah. yeah. Oh, this are the, you kidding me? This is, the, this is the first season we've had on board cams in high definition. Oh, that should goodness. tell you all you need to know. Wow. So, okay. You know, well, F1, it, it was F1, only last year that they yeah. worked out the idea of you know the T camera on top of the driver's pod. Yeah. You can yeah. swivel that three sixty. <laughs> like you know, IndyCar's been doing for. God knows how many years. So, yeah, no, Formula 1 are slow to adapt. And I think this move really says that they are determined to make the most of their investment right now rather yeah. than think of any future plans. They, they, they want that guaranteed money, and that's what they're going to get with this Sky deal. They're going to get at least $55 million a year for at least another eight years. So they've like the FMs, they've made their guaranteed money out of Britain now. It's up, to, it's up to Sky to decide where they can get their money back on this investment. So... So that's what's going to be interesting going forward. But uh, yeah, it's a shame. I would, I'd, I'd, have, I'd have happily paid ten pound a month for an F one esque kind of streaming service like the WWE Network, like Netflix or an Amazon Prime I or think whatever. We all would. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd have no problem paying that money at all. So that's a bummer, and the whole deal, in my opinion, is a bummer. But hey, we get the British Grand Prix for free. That's nice. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Shut up, King! You don't get to laugh. You get to, you get to wallow in our British pity. <laughs> yeah, I think I think MVC showing four races for free this year. Oh fuck you! <laughs> and which which <laughs> ones get... are there? I, I bet they're pretty good ones. They're not like Silverstone, uh, China. Um, help me. What other boring ones are there? Uh, <laughs> Monza. Yeah, possibly. I'm yeah. Sh- Go on. We usually get. We usually get. Yeah, we usually get like. The races on our continent plus Monaco, so I think we're getting so we're getting Brazil, Canada, Mexico. Can- oh, you're getting Canada, USA, Mexico, and Brazil. That's a good deal. Yeah, that's not, that's not bad at all. Uh, I, I, I would happily take. Actually, that. no, we're we're not getting Brazil this year. We're getting Britain. So yeah, okay. <laughs> you're in bad. with us. Okay. <laughs> We're in, this, we're in this together, King. As an honorary Brit, you'll see. You will wallow in our self pity. <laughs> 
like, I, I was already bad enough on Twitter and I was getting the usual American cousins from the grid girls. Shout out to Sarah Connors as always, mocking us. Like, <laughs> like well, well, she was just getting a payback for us last week, just spending 20 minutes mourning Connor Daly. <laughs> that was a payback. Also, King, uh, while I've got you here, I watch a lot of NASCAR, obviously, but I'm curious to know, I vaguely know about the TV deal. You'll be able to help us out here. What's their TV deal like in terms of how many races of theirs are on free-to-air television? Uh, ooh, off the top of my head, there are 36 races. So 13 of them are on free-to-air. The other 23 are on pay TV. That's interesting. So that's, you know, so Fox have their X amount of races. They'll have a certain amount on free-to-air and the others will be on Fox Sports Go or one or two, whatever it is. I see. Okay. So that's quite interesting. And the same thing with NBC. They have part of their races on NBC, which is free-to-air, and NBC Sports, which is pay TV. That's very interesting. Similar deals to what F1 kind of is now in this country. So... Yeah, okay. Interesting, interesting. But um, that's all on the TV deal. Um, next, uh, breaking news story number two of three. Wait, give me a moment to recover. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Hang on. I need to... I'm limbering up for this one. We've just I'm, gone through I'm, the TV deal. I'm, do, I'm doing some reading, so you can, you, can, you can take the next three minutes out. So uh, the Grand Prix Drivers Association made a big announcement on their Twitter account about, well, we've gone to, the t- gone to the tweet about five hours ago now at the time of recording. Can I just um, say, before you, you continue, I think what was quite funny is that I think everyone had the same reaction in that, oh, the GPDA said something, they've had an announcement, this is probably some more about copy protection or something, who knows. That? Oh, okay. <laughs> so yeah. that's what they were, right, I wasn't expecting that. Dre, what was it that no one was expecting them to say? Yeah, here we go. I'll read you the statement in full from, from the GPDA itself. The, the hashtag of, from the GPDA. Yeah the, yeah, the hashtag of Racing United. Here, so here we go. This was, this was released literally today, March 23rd. Driver position statement. Dear Formula One stakeholders, followers, and fans, the Grand Prix drivers would like to state our following position. We drivers love our sport. Since childhood, we dreamed of, of racing the fastest race cars from the top teams on the coolest tracks against the best drivers in the world. Aww. We see competition and love Formula One almost unconditionally, which makes us most probably the people with the purest interest for Formula One besides our fans. Also, this is a bitch to read in full because I'm using the Twitter for screws up and I've actually zoomed everything in a bit. It's kind of annoying, but I'll, I'll, I'll soldier on. Formula One is currently challenged by a difficult global economic environment, a swift change in, in fan and consumer behavior, and a decisive shift in the TV and media landscape. This makes it fundamental that the sports leaders make smart and well-considered adjustments. Here's the big one. We feel that some recent rule changes on both the sporting and technical side and including some business decisions are disruptive, do not address the bigger issues that our sport is facing, and in some cases could, what's that word there, jeopardize its future success. We know that among the leaders of the sport, be if the be if the uh, over here is that representatives, the government body, the teams of or other stakeholders, every individual acts with the very best intentions. Therefore, the drivers have come to the conclusion that the decision-making process in the sport is obsolete and ill-structured and prevents progress being made. Indeed, it can sometimes lead to just the opposite: a gridlock. This reflects negatively on our sport, prevents it from being fit for the next generation of fans. And, and compromises future global growth. 
we would like to um, regest and urge the uh, what was it now? What was the word? Um, and all stakeholders of F1 to inc- to consider restructuring its own governance. The future decisions and uh, future directions and decisions of F1, be they short or long term, sporting, technical, or business orientated, should be based on a clear master plan. Such plan should reflect the principles and core values of Formula One. We need to ensure that Formula One remains a sport, a closely fought competition between the best drivers and extraordinary machines on the coolest racetracks. Formula One should be home to not only the best teams, drivers and circuits, with partners and suppliers for fit for, for such an elite championship. Formula One has undoubtedly established itself as the pinnacle of motorsport and, as such, one of the most viewed and popular sports around the world. We drivers stand united, offer our help and support for Formula One to keep it as such and further to make it fit and exciting for many years and generations to come. It is important to state that this open letter is intended in the best interests of all and should not be seen as a blind and disrespectful attack. Thank you for your attention and granting us the liberty to to put our thoughts into words. Best regards, Jensen Button, Sebastian Vettel, Alex Wirtz on behalf of the Grand Prix Drivers Association. Holy fuck. (laughs) (laughs) The GPDA pipe bomb just got dropped. I that tweet has already been retweeted nearly fifteen hundred times at the time of writing, and it's king. There's no way to describe it. It's an enormous announcement, uh, or at least a statement, a statement of intent. This basically the- confirms what King said only on the last episode. Is there a power struggle in Formula One? Hmm. Yes. yes. Think that question yes, is answered. <laughs> yeah. Go on, King. Yeah, I mean, the letter clearly states that they're they're not happy with the way things are. They they don't say that they're going to do anything, but they they clearly state they're not happy with the way things are. Yeah, there's there's no getting around that. There's like again, it's not. I know people are very quick to make the comparison to 1982 and and the strike the drivers had, which was the, the grand total of a one day strike to uh, protest the super license changes, where the yeah the, the super license deal was, if I'm not mistaken, King was if you got a super license, you'd have to stay with your first team for three years, which yeah. of course is just kind of stupid, really. Um, so of course the drivers the drivers went on strike. It was resolved a day later. No problem. Everybody was back racing again. Hooray! Well, this- people did get fined, so well, people fined. did get fined. They're racing drivers. Fuck it. Um, but in any case, ugh, wow. Um, where do you even start on something like this? Because like the, the statement is obvious is, is obvious enough. The drivers are not happy with the current decision making process, and we've spoken out about this before. Is you know as late as last episode, which was taped what ten days ago, that. <laughs> the decision-making process is clearly broken. Um, going through the strategy group, where only half the teams get a say, and then you need, you need a near-unanimous decision for it to go forward, then you've got to go to the commission, which is a great big group of people that sit in a dark room like the Imperial Order, something out of Star Wars, more than likely, where they make the decisions and it goes through, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we, we saw how it went all went a little bit pear-shaped of the, of the qualifying and We'll talk about that later on in the show, but... King, I mean, this is the first case a major group or major stakeholder in Formula One has come out with such a, I'd say, pretty scathing statement saying, look, 
we don't like this shit. Something's got to give here, basically. Yeah, and they're not happy with... It, it seems like they're not happy with it being basically just band-aid upon, upon band-aid on a massive gunshot wound. Yeah, it's like it reminds me a lot of what Martin Brundle said on Twitter and on the Sky Sports F1 website because you know I'm not I've made it clear in the past I'm not a big fan of Sky's coverage but Martin Brundle's post race columns tend to be very good um, after race weekends and he, he said it himself that uh, on Twitter that F1 needs a master plan going forward it needs something so to speak um, it needs to build around a future plan of some kind. And like you said, you know, it's like you don't want to put a band-aid on a gunshot wound and, you know, it's not going to solve the problem. And F1, I've said it many times, has fundamental problems going forward that needs to be addressed. And they're not getting taken care of. Instead, we're trying to tweak little things like the qualifying format. And I'm sitting here thinking, well... You obviously do care about the show to some degree. You do want to try and make the sport more entertaining. I mean, that's obvious. It's, it's obvious. The, the, the teams and the drivers they do want a more, uh, you know, a more entertaining sport for fans. I mean, I'm not, I'm not disputing that they don't care about us. The problem is they they don't want to change the technical regulations in order for that to happen. They they'd rather basically throw some gimmicks at the wall and see what sticks. And that's essentially what this qualifying format was, Johnson. And, you know, it's it, it, it's clearly gotten to the point where, the, uh, like, I know the GPDA, Alex Wirtz himself, who's, who runs it, said that this wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to anything that happened this past weekend. It probably didn't help, um, to say the least. But this was this was brewing for a while, Johnson, and it's, it's, it's like it's finally come out. This really was the straw that broke the camel's back, it feels like. This this qualifying fiasco where we just had no idea. We still don't know. You know, just as soon as the decision's been made, it's been reversed. Any kind of proposals put forward have been immediately been vetoed because as we've said time and time and time again, why would any team agree to a rule that brings their competition closer to them? So any attempt to improve the show will inevitably neuter a team like Mercedes or Ferrari, one of the top dogs, and why on earth would they ever agree to that? So that's the big flaw in it from the start. Um, I mean, over you know, over in NASCAR, as, I keep, as I've said before, when Gene Haas called NASCAR a dictatorship, everyone thought it was a criticism. In a way, it kind of wasn't, because NASCAR does have that central body that thoroughly researches and takes on the opinions of the drivers and the teams, certainly to for what is best to improve the show and the racing, but then has full control to implement where they see fit. And they go forward, they, they, they have a healthy enough relationship with the drivers and teams so that, you know, if an idea doesn't work, the criticism comes back from the drivers and teams and they'll let them know, hey, this sucks. So like, you know, group qualifying and things like that. And, it, you know, various ideas just that haven't worked the last few years. But conversely, like last year with the uh, test about the downforce package, uh, that was based a lot on feedback from the teams and drivers. But the ultimately, the rule makers had the final power to make that decision. It feels to me like this scenario, I mean, it's a power struggle that's never really gone away. I mean, King will probably right. testify this. You know, going back through the annals of history, there's been flashpoints where there's been disputes with the drivers and teams and the organisers of F1. But over the last few years, it feels to me like it's been building steadily more and more. They've been, you know, recently there's been impasse over or confusion over this qualifying format, which didn't need to be 
tweaked in the first place. It was the last thing that needed fixing. It was the ultimate question of if it ain't broke, break it, try and fix it and make it better to make us look like we're doing something. And they fucked that up royally. It was it was disgusting, quite frankly. Um, uh, you know, this talk about the cockpit protection, it feels, you know, I, I feel that the GPDA are frustrated that not more efforts are being made in that area. It seems to be a tokenistic thing, you know, like a, oh, well, you know, trust me, we are working on cockpit protection and, you know, maybe for the GPDA, they're frustrated about that. But going back through the last few years, you know, maybe at the end of 2000 and was it 14 where we nearly lost, well, we lost Caterham. We nearly, we basically lost Marussia as well until they rose from the dead. Um, and in the last few years, we've had a consistent slew of this team of missed engine payments, normally Force India, this team are in danger of going bust, this team aren't going there. Lotus will have had bailiffs at their fucking truck last year. It was just, it just really didn't look good for the sport. This is not a sport that is in any sort of rude health right now. And it feels to me, I mean, you know, it's clearly not a sport in rude health. It's reigning champion slagged it off the day before the first round of the new season. It said MotoGP was better. On what yeah. planet in any other series would you get that coming up? It would be like Kyle Busch on the eve of the Daytona 500 going, and NASCAR kind of sucks at the moment. I'd rather be in IndyCar. Just what on earth? It was just ridiculous. You can, you can slag off Lewis Hamilton all you want for saying that, but there's got to be something fundamentally wrong when the reigning champion says he'd rather be riding motorbikes. Um, you know, no disrespect, of course, to MotoGP, but basically... You know, you're reigning champions saying that the sport sucks. One of the greatest drivers of the last few year, last decade, Fernando Alonso, says the sport sucks. You know, this is this is just. I mean, Mark Webber has basically made a second career out of giving F1 a kicking <laughs> after he's moved to the WEC. And you know, let's not get into the fact that the last few years they've been F1 has been fighting a sort of running battle with you know fans defecting to the WEC, which is in essence a completely different sport. It's endurance racing. It's you know. Uh, against the clock it's a completely different discipline and yet for many people it's become the new premier world championship how on earth does that happen on formula one's watch and i think for the gpda they must be sitting there going we're the ones going out there every weekend putting our you know bodies on the line you know putting our lives on the line effectively this is you know for all the safety advancements this is still a dangerous sport and for the drivers by choice um so we're going out there doing this only for to get back and for you guys to be sitting on your hands doing nothing, that nothing ever gets done. We put forward proposals for safety, for entertainment, for the the show, for the improve the spectacle and to make it the damn pinnacle of world motorsport that it should be. And it just dies on its ass. Just any proposals die on their ass. Nothing ever gets done. It filters down to the fans who are in this constant state of frustration. You know, what, what on earth came of that survey that came out last year? I mean, it was absolute bollocks to begin with. It was bilge. Um, but they almost seem to be like, yeah, we're listening to the fans. And then nothing happened from it. So there's only so long you can continue in this vacuum. And I feel like the GPDA have had enough. Hence why they've dropped the pipe bomb today. So it's very much, you know... FOM and, and the, 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 the higher-ups in the FIA and Formula 1, the ball is very much now in their court, and it'll be very, excuse me, very interesting to see how they respond. I don't think they are going to respond, King. Do you? No, I mean, they don't have any reason to unless the drivers, you know, go into open revolt, which I don't think anyone is afraid of. Yeah, I mean, I, they ultimately, they're taking shots at, at, at the teams that are making these decisions, and the teams sign their checks. That's kind of a problem. Mm. Um, and 
you know, these guys are going to want to get paid at the end of the day. And I, I don't think the drivers are going to go on strike or anything like that because that would just put the to- the sport into total disrepute. And again, there's there's not very much you can gain from going on strike a lot of the time. So I, I, I wouldn't even go down and even entertain that kind of possibility. But what's like the FOM is not going to make a response. To this the FA is not going to respond to this. Like 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 they're not going to get their hands dirty on this one. They're just going to let the drivers say whatever the hell they want because they know the drivers have got very little say in all this. Very, very little say. And the FOM would probably look, or FOM and the FIA would probably just look better to just say nothing more than anything else. Because if they say something, I think the fans are going to just going to point them and go, boo. Um, King, like, I don't think anything's going to come of this. And I, I, I fear that it's kind of already dead in the water. Uh, I don't know if the drivers keep talking about it, if the drivers still keep it in the headlines that they're not happy about the governing structure, then then there could be a change. And definitely, I think there would be a change if they decide to strike because you can't automatically in the course of a couple hours replace 22 Grand Prix drivers. But do you think the drivers would ever go on strike? I don't think they would, but it's it's an option. It's an option. On the table, I mean, sure. I mean, it's a possibility, but hoy. That'd be a serious game of bluff if they tried that one. Yeah, and like, seriously, would all 22 dudes agree to something like that? I doubt it. Like, like there's, there'd be too many guys in there that would see the opportunity of a weakened field and go, hmm, I can see some points here. <laughs> yeah, but would the sport risk that? I mean, look, imagine that. I mean... Imagine, look at the farce that happened in USA 2005, and that was not a strike. That was a, an issue over tyres that, unsurprisingly, no one could agree to a decision to solve it. So 14, something like that? Yeah, they're 14 or 16 of the 20, yeah, 22. Yes. 22 teams just went on strike effectively the race. They said, you know what? We're not racing. It's too much of a risk. And they were left with a six-car Grand Prix, and that's a farce that's still being talked about to this day. So if the entire field says, you know what, we ain't racing. It doesn't matter what GP2 teams you pull out at the last minute. The fan, There's going to be a riot from the, fa- from the fans' perspective, and it is going to be an absolute farce. From the, and uh, As much as we talked about earlier, what could kill F1 with a stick, that could. I mean, that is really not a good thing. That is going to... Because you think about it, fan rage on its own is not going to change formula one these things on their own are not going to change rum it's when you affect the money men you know the people in charge of the tv deals we've just been talking about the sponsors the investors the top guys who are wanting to see their return on their investment in the sport if they see this thing falling into complete disarray then they go you know what we ain't putting our money in that we're going somewhere else that's when the sport really starts to hurt indeed and Again, it's just I'm more cynical about it, I think, than maybe the the rest of you guys are. But it, I, I, I agree. I think a strike would definitely be the best way to get some immediate action. But I think there's too many dudes on too many paychecks. And like getting 22 dudes to unanimously agree on something is going to be a problem in almost any scenario. It's the reason why often you get 12 guys in a jury and they can't agree on anything either. And you need a unanimous decision until... Like maybe six hours go past, and then the jury, then the judge will go, "Okay, we'll take a ten to two majority, basically, because it's gone for like six hours already." So getting twenty-two people to agree on anything is difficult. Um, but even so, 
it's 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 interesting that the that a a organization that the drivers have come out in unison and said look something's got to change here because it's 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 bad for the sport what's going on whether something actually changes well your guess is as good as mine um Fellas, let's talk about something more positive. The Australian Grand Prix. Yay! Yay. Something good to talk about at last. Formula One did a thing right. Well, the race anyway. Let's talk about Saturday. Uh, oh, oh, no. I was going to go and off myself, guys. It was nice knowing you. Yeah, okay. The, well, at the, least we they've can't... resolved it and decided to bin the whole... Oh, no, they haven't. Oh, God. Yeah. Well, well they kind of did. Maybe. And then they didn't, and they've basically proven the GPDA right by just not being able to make a fucking decision if you stuck a gun to their head. Yeah, it's okay. We we can't talk about Australia without talking about Saturday. It's impossible. Sat- Saturday marks the debut of the new qualifying format, a format of elimination style qualifying where the first session was 16 minutes long. After nine minutes, uh, there will be a driver eliminated every 90 seconds up until the end of the session except for the end where you could fill in an extra lap anyway, like Jody and Palmer did, which totally wasn't confusing to a casual viewer. Um, so that would go on and on and on, etc. until you got to Q3. It was a 14-minute session, and obviously, again, eliminations off to five minutes every 90 seconds. Eventually, you'd have a top two shootout for pole. Yay! Um, King, I think it's fair to say it was an unmitigated disaster. <laughs> yeah. When you end a session with no cars on track, it's a disaster. <laughs> It was a disaster. To put this into context, if you have not seen said qualifying session, maybe if you're not an F1 fan, but listen to us, listen to us anyway. There was no cars on track for the final four and a half minutes of that qualifying session. Fans Normally, were leaving the grandstands. Fans were leaving five minutes early. Like normally in a qualifying session, you get your most dramatic peak at the end of a session. Obviously after the checkered flag's gone out and everyone's getting their final banker laps in to try and go for pole. Lewis Ham- As Damon Hill quite rightly said, Lewis Hamilton could have flown his own checkered flag with four and a half minutes to go. It had gone to a point where we were seeing guys like Daniel Ricciardo and Max Verstappen on the Weybridge with three minutes left. Vettel had left the garage and had actually had time to go to his motorhome and change into civil gear for the press conference off the qualifying third on the grid. What an absolute farce. It was, absolute, it was absolutely atrociously bad. I have, I have never seen a situation on F1 Twitter where everybody unanimously had completely shat the bed on it. It was terrible in every conceivable way, Johnson. And no surprise... Almost like it had gone to a point where even team bosses like Toto Wolf and Christian Horner were standing there in unison saying, This didn't work. Like, it, I, I never seen it. Like, like, Channel 4 had their first ever broadcast uh, about it, and they had Horner and Wolf in the same interview and they both unanimously agreed it was it was wrong. They got it completely wrong and they had to apologize to the fans yeah. for it. I mean, Johnson, I mean, we we can't understate how bad this was, was it? No, we really can't. And this is probably, as I say, the straw that broke the GPDA's camel's back. Hence their statement today, their pipe bomb. Um, This was just a really bad idea from the start. And it reminded me a little bit, um, although if anything, it was 10 times worse than the decision, I believe it was last year, by NASCAR to adopt group qualifying rather than single car runs. Now, in NASCAR, that system was fine, except when you got to the restrict plate tracks where not being the first car out 
was vital because if you were the first car out you were a disadvantage because everyone would draft off you and you'd get crazy scenarios where guys would be desperately trying to draft for people the pole winner would normally be the guy who was 14th in the pack and almost every single session on restricted play tracks would end in huge wrecks and it was it was abandoned very quickly but this was it was if anything even worse and i don't want to see anyone try and say oh well it was the teams trying to be clever this is all the teams fault for trying to be uh, fancy no go home i'm sorry teams and drivers will do whatever they need to do to win and if they've worked out in a session that doing this will give them an advantage or give them the best chance of qualifying and if there is absolutely no chance of no point of them running again then they're not going to we've said this before the teams and the drivers are not under an obligation to provide the fans with entertainment and they weren't going to go out there just to run some laps just to have a car on track and for me The really, really big issue here was the fact that laps were completely discounted as soon as these limits were hit. As soon as the five minutes went by or whatever, and one of these elimination rounds went by, which, by the way, in some cases, would not even be enough to do a warm-up lap and a timed lap at some of the longer circuits later in the season. Um, But basically, the point was, as as soon as the clock went past that limit, the cutoff... Your current lap was DQ'd. That was it. It was thrown out. It was gone. There was no... I think everyone assumed that, hey, this will make sense because, hey, they'll probably let them finish the lap that they're on, right? Wrong. And that was the really... It was as soon as people realised that, they went, oh, right, this is shit. Yeah, because because you couldn't do that. Because if he did that, you'd you'd be refusing the driver the right to reply. That's the problem. Mm. And not to mention on top of that, like the problem was, I think for me, is that to do two runs in quality requires five laps. You need to do, you need to go out, hot lap, in, out lap, hot lap again. Even if you did a racing pit stop, which no team decided to decided to do because you obviously you got to reset the car, put put fuel back in the car again and whatnot, and send it back out. By the time you're doing that, you're looking at maybe eight to nine minutes. So that's roughly when the time elimination started anyway. So most of the time, you got one run. If you got if you if you were caught out with the timing and your first run wasn't good enough, that was it. It's why teams at the start would often try and do two laps on the quali. Problem was, Pirelli's tires aren't designed to do more than one hot lap in qualifying mode because Kvyat said himself, "Yeah, we did a second lap. It was clean, but it was just slower." It's like like the the, the tire life that isn't good enough in a Pirelli's peak performance to be able to do two, more than one quality lap at a time. So it was kind of like that really awkward fuel burning era of qualifying, like in 2006. King, it, 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 it was just terrible in every way, wasn't it? There's no getting around this, is it? <laughs> it's just... Yeah, it yeah. Like, like, like people can't admit that there can be poorly designed games, like even board games like Monopoly. Like Monopoly is a terribly designed game, yes. but it... So people choose not to play it. This is a poorly designed system of qualifying. So this should just be scrapped. Yeah, like essentially, that's as that's the long and the short of it, really. Um, so you know, it's just one of those things. But wow, just uh, again, it was so bad that the FIA and the team bosses got together. They banged their heads against the wall hopefully, and basically said, okay, this is terrible. We're scrapping it for Bahrain. That took, well, I'd say, what, twenty less than 24 hours after that qualifying session even happened, and it's amazing, King, that it took 
it took that for F1 to be totally unified on an issue <laughs> and for them to act quickly. It took that. That's yeah. what it took. <laughs> it took fans literally walking out of the Grand Prix venue for, for a change to happen. That what but, it takes. Maybe, maybe, maybe we should plan this out more often. If we don't like F1 a bit more, maybe we should just have an organized walkout during like Q3. Oh, maybe do it Liverpool fans are something. <laughs> yeah, do it Liverpool style. But guys, I'm on right in thinking the system isn't actually dead after all. They agreed to scrap the thing, and yet now I'm hearing that it could be back or it might be half a thing. Of, oh yeah. my god, my head hurts. Yeah, basically, this is breaking news story number three, and that motorsport.com revealed this literally about 15 minutes before we were set to record this podcast. It's almost like someone that- knew we were taping today instead of Monday. Yeah, it's like we've been blessed with this. But uh, the FIA is now in talks again to not scrap the format, but to tweak the format, maybe to the extent with what the original plan was with Q3 on the 2015 system that is unchanged, basically a straight a straight up 12-minute shootout for pole in Q3 instead of the 14-minute elimination format where basically it was one run and half the field gets dropped out, um, so to speak. So... There's there's talk that uh, that the format will be tweaked, brought back, and tried again. Like King, is there anything that can salvage this format? No, sorry. <laughs> yeah, like 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 John, Johnson straight up saying it can't be saved. <laughs> I think it could be, but I think it's a it's a reach. <laughs> Anyone? <laughs> I mean, they 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 said that they're thinking about it that it could happen it, it's not they will bring it back it could come back they might tweak it so q3 is the old system and q1 and 2 is the eliminator system but who knows there could be other tweaks involved but it said it could come back that there's that it's still on it's still a discussion point at the table you know the whole thing about moving deck chairs on the titanic this is kind of like the Titanic having already hit the iceberg and to be most of the way into the ocean. You know, the the, the main players have already died. Um, <laughs> Leonardo DiCaprio is already well drowned, frozen in the sea, and yet the FIA are still sat on the deck rearranging the deck chairs. They're like, no, hang on, if we just reposition them this way, we'll be fine. Glug, 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 glug. This is... Oh, my God. Seriously. If you hear a banging sound, that's me bashing my head against my desk repeatedly. No one of the GPDA put out that statement. We're getting yeah, frustrated I mean, and we're just people with microphones and opinions. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm more in the camp of, okay, sure, you can tweak it, but it's not going to look good after what happened in Australia. Um, and I, I, I stick with that now. I mean, sure, you can tweak it. I don't think it's a complete dead goose. Maybe if you open the elimination windows to maybe three minutes instead of 90 seconds, you could do something like that instead um, and whatnot. Again, you can tweak it, but I think at this point, King, after Australia's unmitigated failure, it's not going to be a good look to even entertain the prospect of bringing this back. It was that bad. Uh. I wouldn't say Q3 was definitely that bad. Q1, it, not so it was not so much. I could see there being some value in that. But yeah, everything else outside of Q1, maybe Q2, not worth even thinking about. Even in Q2, there was no cars on track with two and a half minutes left. 
So, you know, it, it, was, it was a mini version of what happened in Q3 because people have realized, oh, qualifying Q9, like by P9 or P10 with an open choice of tire is might be better value than qualifying P6 or 7. So, you know, like, like there will be teams that will be legitimately content, like Force India was, to straight up say, you know what? We'll take going out in, in, in P9 and P10. We'll give us the open tire strategy instead and see if we can work something out here. So, again, there's I think the, the, the format in general is fundamentally flawed in many ways. But, hey, let's see what they do about it. Oh, did we, did we mention by that Nico, Nico Rosberg actually won that Grand Prix? Is that, is that worth mentioning? <laughs> and that the race was actually pretty good. Yeah, the race what? was good. The race was great. And that, hey, whoa, 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 whoa. whoa. This you might want to put seatbelt your on your you might want to put seatbelts on your ears at this point because this may blow them clean off your head. The FIA and the strategy group got something right with the new tire rules. Yeah, I like, know they got something right. It's, it's amazing. amazing. This yeah. time, understandably, this idea was met with pure cynicism, and people were genuinely really confused about this new uh, tire policy that Pirelli had brought in, in combination with the strategy group. It worked beautifully for this race because having three potential tires you can use mixed up the strategies. It didn't make the race too confusing to follow. And we genuinely saw Ferrari try something different. They tried an ultra aggressive strategy of going with a super soft, super soft, soft strategy as opposed to Mercs on the mediums to basically try and upset the apple cart and try and catch us, catch Mercedes napping. And it very nearly worked. And that was the backbone of intrigue throughout the entire race. Yeah, we got some good passes and some good action further down the field despite all that, but we had a genuine battle for the front and we had a, a race that was tense all the way through and that included Vettel at the end trying to chase down a Hamilton that hit the cliff on his tyres with five to go. Um, so, yeah, we got a wonderful finish to what was a great race across the board, mostly because of the Ferretti strategy group working. Again, failed to mention, Nico Rosberg did win the race. I just thought I'd remind you guys again in case you'd already <laughs> forgotten. His fourth race win in a row, his 15th career win in general, which means he's only one behind Sir Sterling Moss is the winningest driver without a world championship. So, uh, yeah, suck on that, people that tell me Rosberg isn't a Hall of Fame driver. Get out of here. He Was absolutely caper. is. But, but uh, <laughs> shut up. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but um, yeah, Rosberg took the win. Hamilton had kind of like the race from hell in terms of being stuck behind the rear arse of a Rosso for two-thirds of the race. Had a Actually, horrific start as well. Had a horrific start. Those Merck's clutches really aren't great at all. And he finished in second despite Sebastian Vettel bearing down him at a rate of knots and you know could have very nearly won the race if it wasn't for the uh, Ferrari just getting it wrong on the strategy I mean I know hindsight is a wonderful thing and I know people were burying Ferrari for getting this one so wrong people Merckx won this race last year by 36 seconds can you blame Ferrari for trying to go for the throat on this one I can't like I, I totally understand King why Ferrari did what they did on this one because you're not going to beat Mercs in a dogfight. You might as well, you might as well roll the dice to try something different, right? Or am I crazy? Somebody tell me I'm crazy or not. No, I don't think you are. And it, I, I, I believe I read somewhere that um, it actually had the red flag not come out. The Ferrari strategy may well have worked perfectly. Is that correct, King? He around still? <laughs> I think we killed him off with all this controversy. 
<laughs> no, I mean, it, it seems like the strategy would have worked even with the red flag. It just seems like they they had it in their hands and just let it slip. Yeah, because it, it seems like the second Superstop stint was, I think, the one that killed them because they had to prolong it to make the Softs a viable tire in the long run. They probably didn't foresee the cliff coming with Mercs with, with, with five to go. But again, like I know TechCraft has tried to look into, oh, like Mercs know this medium tire better than everybody else's because they ran it so much in testing. My response to that is, you can't simulate Australia's conditions. No. So you, there's only so much you can read into something like that from Kravitz. And, you know, why didn't you just shadow Mercedes? And I'm like, you can't really shadow them either because they, if you change tires in the pit lane during the red flag, they can change back. Like you can, play, you can play chicken on this one. And eventually you've got to commit to putting a car on the tires and sending them out there. So And they lost Riker then as a potential blocker. So, you know, I think it was more Ferrari letting this one slip. I, I mean, what they did seemed sound to me on paper. And I think if if Ferrari and Vettel had gone on to win, we'd have all held them as geniuses anyway, mm. and, we, and we'd all be saying that Merck's got it wrong. So fuck it. It's whatever to me at this point. <laughs> so, what overall, I enjoyed overall with this race, and this was prevalent throughout the field, certainly with the lead battle as well, what I really enjoyed is the strategic flexibility that these tyres provided, and I believe that's what you know, the teams and drivers in this championship have been crying out for for years. Um, you know, over in IndyCar, they have, they've had the whole soft tyre, you know, prime option tyre, if you will. Um, yeah. But in terms of they've also had refueling, they have fairly regular full course yellows and that. So they have more strategic flexibility in terms of that. And we, we see it all the time. We'll see guys there on different strategies coming through the field, reshuffling, you know, leaders will drop back and then come through and then do something else and do something quite interesting. And, we had that here in Australia, which is normally not really the most kind of spectacular in terms of pure pyrotechnics and action. Um, and this was a really interesting race. Constantly up and down the field, there were battles. There were cars coming through on different strategies. There was the flashpoints between Jolly and Palmer and the Renault and the and the Toro Rossos. There was scraps, li- literally, wherever you looked on the track, there was something going on. And the fact that the podium spots were not really... Uh, secure or set in stone until about three laps to go. That's huge. Normally they've been in in no doubt until past lap three. Pretty much that's been the, the podium set. There you go. Merckx, maybe Vettel. But this, and, you know, I mean, and, a great yeah. start helped. Um, but this was just seemed to be a huge kind of breath of fresh air in terms of tactics, strategy, making things viable and enabling some raw racing because guess what guys there's never been a period of formula one where people went flat out first flag to last the key thing is letting the drivers go flat out at important parts of the race we saw this last year in indycar with graham rahal and his amazing charge through the field on an alternate strategy late on a barber oh my goodness that was something for the ages and formula one has kind of almost accidentally stumbled on a formula which enables that to potentially happen we saw a charge late with Vettel could have had second had things worked out well this this was very interesting it also felt to me like the gap between Mercedes and Ferrari performance wise had closed just enough to make Ferrari be able to trip up Mercedes with an alternate strategy or attack at the very least they're probably not fast enough on raw pace we saw that in qualifying but they're just close enough to challenge last year for a lot of it they were just nowhere. If Mercedes didn't trip up, Ferrari had no answer. But this year, I don't know, Dre, it, it kind of feels like they're just close enough to potentially slip a banana skin. 
Yeah, like mercs tend to panic when it comes to when it comes to strategic calls on on, on occasions in the past. They've done that before. Last year they were one point six seconds off Mercedes in qualifying. This year they were only eight tenths. So it says a lot that Ferrari have closed the gap. They were very competitive in Bahrain last year, where they're going to next weekend. And, you know, Raikkonen was only a couple of seconds off the win uh, last year, despite Hamilton being up the front. And they do look closer. We're going to wait and see. Again, in qualifying, Vettel was only three tenths off the top in Bahrain last year. So again, there's a possibility that Ferrari's up there. I need to see a little bit more first, but in any case, Pirelli... And the, the, the new strategy made it viable. It brought guys into play, which we'll talk about in a little bit. And overall, it made for a very entertaining and dramatic race that had a battle for the lead from start to finish. And that's kind of what we all wanted. That's what the casual fans want to see. They want to see battles at the front between the people who matter. And that's kind of what we got here. And that's hardly a complaint. Oh, and by the way, Nico Rosberg won, in case you forgot again already. Um, so other highlight. Yeah, shut up. Uh, <laughs> saying, yeah, but moving on again, the red flag was caused by a simply hellacious accident between Fernando Alonso and Esteban Gutierrez. Um, Gutierrez seemed to change direction in the braking zone right at the last minute, and it seemed to catch Alonso out, and Alonso ended up driving over Gutierrez's rear wing at 190 miles an hour. Um He's gone over the top. He's hit the gravel trap. He's flipped the car over and into the barrier at very high speed. Very reminiscent crash to Martin Brundles in the 90s and the Jack Villeneuve Ralph Schumacher accident from 2001 that very sadly killed Marshall Graham Beveridge. Um, it caused the red flag as well, the debris after as well. See, Alonso hit the left hand wall first and then obviously going into the turn, the turn three gravel trap. But uh, my word, King, an enormous accident and. Uh, one that definitely caught a lot of us cold. Yeah, I mean, it, that's definitely now the case study to why we don't have gravel traps everywhere anymore because they just throw cars into the air and flip them. Yeah, I, I know. Like, like I, I, I thought what was amazing about this, of course, given recent talking and whatnot, that um, this discussion has been about the halo, obviously, in cockpit protection and whatnot. Of course, a lot of the pure, like a lot of the sim racing crowd, I think, were very, very diligent on this one. Like, oh, this is why we don't need halos, etc. And I'm like, shut up, okay. And and like Alan McNish was 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 strong on the other end, saying this is why we need cockpit protection because of this accident. And I'm sitting here thinking. You're targeting the wrong areas, gentlemen. The wheel tethers actually did their job very well in this case to, to keep the tires out of Alonso's cockpit. The issue for me is that why do we still have gravel traps again? Like, is there's no coincidence that every new track that's been built and is now on the F1 calendar doesn't have gravel traps anymore. There's no coincidence that Monza had the Parabolica tarmacked over um, to allow a greater degree of runoff. And it reminds me a lot, Johnson, of the two big incidents we had with, with barriers last season. Max Verstappen at Monaco, where he hit that turn one bar uh, barrier about 170. And then the other one for me was Carlos Sainz hitting the wall in Russia mm. um, down in sector three. Luckily, only a concussion for Carlos. It could have easily been a lot worse. But it hit, they hit barriers relatively head on and were largely fine where the red flag incident in this race was caused by Alonso flying off into a gravel trap that obviously flipped his car over. So for me, the question I want to ask is, why do we have gravel traps again? 
It's a very difficult one, isn't it? Because, you know, gravel traps, uh, they provide a sufficient deterrent, you know, for, for running wide in that. And we've all had this argument about track limits and things. Um, so, you know, tarmac runoffs, people abuse them and they go wide and they do the track limit runoffs. But now we're thinking gravel is just too much. You know, at the very least, a car goes off and is normally beached, so it has to be recovered. And at the most, it causes a car to dig in and flip, um, which sometimes is not the worst thing because the rolling and the rotating kind of dissipates the energy but you know it's it's slightly better in that way than a complete head-on impact but at the same time this still didn't look great i mean what was interesting about this is that uh, at the time i was watching it i actually put the word out on twitter about whether indycar style rear wheel guards would have helped in this scenario and the general consensus including me was probably not this was such a out of the blue instant where Gutierrez moved across, did Alonso converge, who knows? This was very reminiscent to um, Mark Webber at Valencia, I want to say 2011. Um, and he was impacting one of the Lotus Caterham, the old, you know, the, the Lotus that later became Caterham. Valencia. That was Valencia 2011, yeah. 2011, yes. It reminded me a lot of that sort of instant. Um, and... Uh, this is one of those incidents that's going to be hard to avoid, whatever happens. This was a, a, a slight potential error of judgment from both sides. They just miss, they converged at exactly the wrong time. Um, you're absolutely right, Dre, to praise what has been good safety improvements. The tyres didn't go flying. They didn't go careering off. Uh, the bodywork re relatively stayed intact. And, you know, we have talked about cockpit pr protection recently. We also need to mention the fact that over the, the last decade or so, drivers are now sat lower in the car anyway. So the sides are higher up. And certainly, you know, Alonso being able to tuck in like that meant that even if the car ended up top side up against the wall, once it had finished barrel rolling, he was still able to squeeze out and get out. And there was that iconic, iconic image of him sort of cramped getting out of the car. And the most touching thing for me was the fact that Gutierrez just went straight over and the two, the two men hugged straight away. It was a real sense of race drivers understand what they're getting into every time. And, you know, Alonso has been one of the guys who's been kind of old school a little yeah. bit in the sense of he does, you know, he will actively say, he's kind of been more in the F1 needs a bit of risk camp. So it was nice in this regard that the two drivers were kind of like, well, if we're going to say that sort of stuff, we have to live by it. And there's that mutual respect of, I'm glad you made that one, son, because that didn't look good. Yeah, it was a very touching statement that Alonso made after the crash where he said, I wanted to get out of the car as soon as possible so because I know my mother is watching and um, I wanted to make sure that I was okay. It's fair enough. Um, I mean, imagine if either of us were in that crash. Our parents would be just doing their nutting at the, t oh, at the oh, TV. Yeah. <laughs> well, I know my mother should be bricking it right, right at that point in time. Yeah, it would be, be ridiculous. But um, yeah, I, I don't think this merits or... It just you know, establishes the halo discussion. I think again, I said on Twitter. I said at the time, I said, "Let us never stop having the conversation for ways to improve safety." I know I never actually go. I know people have tried to gun me down for this, and I've said, "Guys, I don't, I don't necessarily agree with the halo. What I'm saying is, what we should be having is a conversation. Exactly. Let's talk about it rather than saying, oh, we don't need this.' No, no, no." No, no, I don't believe in that. I believe we need a in... balanced debate, and we had this when the Halo made the debut. We we both called for balance. Let's not go so much in extreme fear mongering one way or extreme conservative. No, nothing needs to change the other way. We just need balance on this one. We need calm heads, and in a way, having a discussion about safety immediately after a massive accident or potentially a fatal accident is not a good thing to do because emotions are running high, and and no one's exactly. going to be thinking clearly. So, for now. 
let's just be stoked that Fernando Alonso was able to make a joke on Twitter about reading a newspaper saying he was lucky to be alive. <laughs> that was great. That, that was, was fantastic. Great. That was a great picture. But um, let's talk about a little bit more positive news real quick here. Uh, King, feel free to go full American on us. Has scored points on their debut. Yes. Sorry. In, in, the, in the words of Gene Haas, we'll do better next week. <laughs> like, like, Such an we, American. Like, I love it. <laughs> most arrogant American statement I've heard in some time because the, the, the guy like Hassi's original aim was let's just get a car over the line in race one let alone in P6 <laughs> with Romain Grosjean for eight points on their debut so Gina says it like hey, yeah we'll, we'll do better in, we'll do better in Bahrain next week and I'm like oh for god's sake <laughs> I think he had his tongue firmly in his cheek when he said that I, yes. I'd like to think so because yeah, man, Romain, I, I, I loved about that. I loved Romain Grosjean's radio message. It was like, guys, guys, this is a win for us. This is a win. <laughs> this is a win for us. And you know, uh, welcome to Formula One, Gene. And uh, yeah, like Grosjean was so in, was was so over the moon. He didn't even know where he'd finished uh, on, on on the track as it as it all finished and all, as it all unfolded. It was a gen- the emotion in Grosjean's voice was wonderful to hear and. Uh, um, a team that is obviously coming completely from scratch, very Toyota-esque. I think Toyota was, was the name that was dropped around a lot after this. That's uh, another team that scored points in its F1 debut. Um, I think that was, what, 2002, I want to say? Um, yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah, 2002. I got, my, I got my years right for once. Nice. Um, but uh, yeah, Haas coming over the line in P6. A train behind him for what it's worth because Haas effectively did not stop for that P6 because they were out there. They did not pit before the, the uh, red flag and they changed to the mediums and went the distance thinking, hey, if guys are going to stop once or twice more, maybe we can pick a few guys off and get some points here. And it works. And King, that car ain't half bad. <laughs> no, not at all. It seems like it seems like it could be scoring points almost every race weekend. Let's not get ahead of ourselves here. But yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I mean, they they were they were able to hold off strong cars. They had Force India behind them. They had Williams behind them. They had Renault behind them. The Renault factory team back there. They had some good midfield cars behind them, unable to do anything. Obviously, the two Torosos that looked very fast in the early going. But um, yeah, I mean, overall, a brilliant debut for the Haas team. And uh, yeah, where where they go, Gene and the team, and they've worked very very hard to get to this position so quickly, and for them to be rewarded. With- me with eight points on their debut is a tremendous effort and uh, again the car looks very solid indeed so i look forward to seeing uh where it goes um and whether they can keep this up or whether this was just a one-time thing but i think i think they've got potential there also yeah. i love to mention as well also i want to give him a shout out to mention to a dare to be different ambassador ruth buscombe as well uh, the strategist for the Haas f1 team former formerly of ferrari and the fact she's now probably got a restraining order out on ted kravitz after the post-race interviews <laughs> where i was like <laughs> The strategists don't talk, and, and she's running off to get away from the cameras. Kravitz is just chasing her into the Haas garage. Well, that was one of the funniest parts of the weekend. But uh, I tell you what, though, you have to give a shout out to Romain Grosjean, of course. And I oh, say yeah. that because I mean the gratitude on the radio afterwards spoke volumes. Here's a man who, since 2012, still has to put up with jibes about being that guy who causes pileups on the first lap. Why people still say that, I literally have no idea. They need to go and get a lobotomy. Um, 
but this is a guy <laughs> who the last couple of seasons of his career have almost been a wash. The latter years of Lotus, there were a real struggle from 2014 onwards. In 2013, he was this close to breakthrough Grand Prix victories. He was seriously strong in the second half of 2013. 2014 was an absolute bust. We all remember him losing his temper in Singapore when he had yet another engine go south. 2015, similar amount. This was a guy who didn't know whether he'd still have a race team when he arrived at the racetrack to drive four. And the weekend that they had bailiffs surrounding the trailers and the haulers, he put the thing P3 at Spa. This is a guy who thrives in adversity. And in the off-season, moving to a brand new startup team, that's going to be a big, big decision for your F1 career. Many people must have viewed it as a at least a sideways step, let alone a backwards one, especially mm. considering Renault coming in as a factory team now taking over the Lotus operation. So the fact that he came home sixth, stronger than most of his finishes for Lotus the last couple of years, man, he must have felt good. That must have yeah. felt really good. Indeed. Uh, so, yeah, again, Grosjean's a, a real great driver, a real great talent, a good guy to have on the grid, and, you know, well-deserved after a couple of years of real struggle that wasn't really his fault at lotus for, for he was almost punished for being loyal to the brand despite uh you know that 2013 season where he was so great in the second half of it but uh yeah let's let's move on real quick and let's talk about max verstappen <laughs> oh. the internet's favorite son uh that, that may have actually spoiled a few people because uh Boy, uh, Mad Max was in the house on this one because uh, Verstappen, who, to be fair to his credit, was ahead of Carlos Sainz in, in the early portions of the race, kind of was hurt by a pit stop where Max seemed to make a last-minute call to change tyres. It hurt his pit stop. He was dropped behind Carlos Sainz, his teammate, and as Carlos Sainz came through the field and got to the back of Jolien Palmer's Renault, Verstappen was going crazy. Basically, a um, many, F, some, many F words were exchanged as he was basically talking about how the team would not give him the order to for Carlos Sainz to uh, move out of the way and have and give Verstappen a crack of being able to pass him. Um, and Verstappen was heated about this, and we had a couple of yeah. I think he had, he had a spin in the late going, and I think he almost uh, he hit somebody and went off on the final corner. He hit Sainz. Yeah, he, he hit his teammate in, in the closing stages of the race as well. He seemed to really lose his rag about this, and it didn't help further on as well towards the end of the day after, I should say, after the Grand Prix, where he went out and said that uh, it's not a big deal because normally I'd be miles ahead of him anyway. And I'm like, oh, boy. <laughs> Max Max, not afraid to throw the shade in Carlos Sainz's direction here. Um a lot of people, I, I find it amazing that people want to discuss the maturity of an 18-year-old Formula 1 driver. Like I saw people going out here like who were 15, 16 years old coming out here saying that Max Verstappen needs to grow up. I thought that was hilarious in its own right, that yeah, pre-hormonal teenagers are out here trying to basically tell Verstappen to be more mature. But King, have we all forgotten that we're dealing with an 18-year-old here? Yeah, I think we have. We've forgotten an 18-year-old who basically got an F1 his second year into car racing. Like, he's... If, if, if there's anyone who has the right to be immature on the grid, he's probably the most likely. Yeah, I mean, I mentioned this on Twitter at the time, right? I said that Max debuted his, his first ever F1 driver was, was as a 16-year-old. I think it was the week before his 17th birthday in Japan last year. Uh, the year before, I should say, 2014. And my, my, my response to this whole situation was, 
He's had people tell him how great he is going to be for nothing but two solid years now. He's been told how great he is going to be or how he could be a future world champion, how he's so entertaining because he's willing to take the chance on riskier overtakes and whatnot. Like, Johnson, like, are we surprised in the slightest? Or should we be surprised that it's actually gotten to his head just a little bit, maybe? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, certainly you can excuse frustration coming out. I think, <clears throat> to be honest with you, this will have to be a learning experience. And I'd be very surprised if Christian Horner or somebody didn't take him to one side after those comments and said, hey, you're allowed to be frustrated at your teammate or us. Don't air your dirty laundry in public, son. That's not something pro drivers do. But hey, I mean, it's very comparable in a way to the Chase Elliott scenario in NASCAR. I know I'm going to make another NASCAR comparison. Um, But he was, you know, you look at Verstappen and Elliott, both sons of former drivers, um, both guys who were winning things by teenage years. I mean, Chase Elliott became an Xfinity Series champion in NASCAR in his rookie season, age 18 and is now taking over Jeff Gordon's ride, aged 20. Um, but last year, when he was running his second year in Xfinity Series, when he knew he was getting the 24 ride, there were moments of frustration, but it was very strange how... I mean, Elliot seemed to deal with it more internally. He seemed to blame himself for his poor performances, and he seemed to beat himself up. And, you know, you could sort of tell that there were people... You know, his dad knew the business inside and out, Bill Elliott, awesome Bill. He would have taken him to one side and said, son... It's fine. So for more season, you're going to get frustrated. You've had people, you've had this amazing success for your whole, your whole career. And it's a very young career still. Um, So it's, it's inevitable. Just manage it. You'll be fine. And I feel like Jos Verstappen and uh, the guys around Max, this is the time where they have a responsibility to really guide this kid because, you know, it's inevitable. We, we get frustrated. We got frustrated as teenagers playing video games or Mm. on the bus i don't know it's doing something teenage related let alone driving a formula one car so of course he's going to get frustrated throwing the shade at his own teammate it's not a good look so i feel like this was a heat of the moment thing and Mm. i hope that yoss and franz tost and maybe christian horner just take him to one side and say we understand your frustration you're you're a hormonal teenager who's in formula one and is touted as the next was being compared to Ayrton senna in his third sodding grand prix yeah. Of course he's going to have a little bit of an ego. Just chill and learn when to air your dirty laundry in public. So I hope this is a learning experience for him. I don't see why people need to get on his case massively. It's not like he said something really, really bad. No. It's it's natural. Formula One driver shows emotion shock. Goodness me. Everybody gets mad on the radio every once in a while when things don't go their way. They're driving 220 miles an hour Formula One cars with 900 horsepower. Why are we surprised at this? And yeah, like I said it before, Verstappen is going to have an ego. He, like he's he's had nothing but people tell him how great he's going to be for for two years. It's got to his head a little bit. Understandable. He's an 18 year old hormonal teenager in F1. I know he's been so great lately that it's easy to lose sight of that sometimes. But I don't see what the problem is. Um, so, yeah. Now, I'm going to call an audible on this one. I'm going to talk about MotoGP on next week's episode because we're already at the 80-minute mark, and I think that's long enough, quite frankly. So I'm going to skip straight to our and finally segment for this episode of the podcast. The driver of the day, Paul, was a little thing that came up before the Australian Grand Prix started. It was a little thing to encourage, obviously, more fan interaction and fan participation. So fans would get to choose an official driver of the day for Formula One.com. A third party was organizing the votes. And 
who would have been driver of the day, Johnson, if the voters had their way? Well, let's um, let's explain it like this. The official driver of the day was announced as Roman Grosjean. Yes, well-deserved, oh. of course. But it goes a little bit deeper in that because earlier in the day before the votes were closed and the, the announcement was official, uh, I believe it might have been the guys at Side Podcast who are friends of the channel here, um, actually uncovered a way of tracking the real-time votes um, using a, an, an inspect element thing in Google Chrome, I believe it was. And at the time, Rio Harianto was leading by something like 22,000 votes over Roman Grosjean's (laughs) 16, 17,000. And we got the final figures direct message to us after the vote, after Roman Grosjean was announced as the winner. Yeah, he didn't suddenly get miraculously more votes than Harianto. Harianto still should have beaten Grosjean, but apparently Max Verstappen in the last four or five hours before the vote closed shot up to 240,000 votes. Mm, and I found it hilarious how when they announced Grosjean as the winner, they had to have an asterisk saying, yeah, um, any repeat votes or votes that we believe are spam weren't counted. I was like, yeah, yeah, you really don't say. I mean, everyone could see there was no vote verification for this. There was, you know, you could just spam the vote as much as you wanted. Everyone could see this thing was going to get abused to shit right from the get-go. And we had Rio Harianto. We had Indonesian fans astroturfing for Rio Harianto like f- mad. We all knew this was going to become a popularity contest. That's why Dale Earnhardt Jr. has won the most popular driver award for about the last 20 years in NASCAR. This is... It was always going to be that way, so... Yeah, it was kind of funny in the end, really. Yeah, I mean, we've come to the conclusion that I think voting polls and fan votes in general just don't really work. I remember the NBA All-Star game earlier this year where Kobe Bryant was the leading vote-getter despite being largely mediocre for the Lakers, obviously, because he's already announced his retirement. People want to see Kobe Bryant one more time in the All-Star game as a fan vote, despite the fact, obviously, on performance alone, he would never make the All-Star game on merit. Also, it happened in a case where in, on the Western Conference, Draymond Green was robbed of a starting spot because of Zaza Pachulia. And Zaza Pachulia, who was a backup center for the Dallas Mavericks, he only got a boost because the uh, musician Wyclef Jean posted a video on his Twitter about it saying to vote for Zaza. And he very nearly was a starter in the All-Star game, almost purely because of Kobe Bryant's vote taking his spot away. Also on the Eastern side, Paolo Gasol was 360 votes away from being a starter and instead did not make the All-Star game, period, as Camelo Anthony was the one that outbeat him. And King, I'm sure you've got a, a story about a fan vote in the MLB, whatnot, with um, with the Kansas City Royals, right? Yeah, the Kansas City Royals last year. Um, I think they the starting lineup had eight out of nine of the starters being from the Kansas City Royals. <laughs> And of an all-star game, <laughs> and and they crushed a record for for most for most ballots submitted. And this was the first ever year they decided not to have paper ballots anymore, and it was going to be all online balloting. They crushed the ballot record by I think over a hundred million ballots. So it was what? like, yeah, the the record was back in twenty twelve. It was. 391 million ballots. I think the final count was over 500 million ballots submitted for the All-Star game. Wow. Half a billion ballots for a baseball hall of a baseball All-Star game. That's that's ridiculous. So, can I just say, bringing it back to the Formula 1 vote, I've got the results sent through here, the raw data. 
Um, yeah. Some of them are just hilarious. Apparently, Rubens Barrichello got two. Sebastian oh. Vettel got one, apparently. I'm not sure if that's correct. And yeah. guess who got more than both of them? Go on. Boaty McBoatface on eight. Hey! <laughs> There's some Boaty bizarre Bo- stats in here. It is absolute. It's an absolute farce. It's yeah. absolutely ridiculous. Uh, look, sporting organisations, listen and listen to me good. Don't do fan votes online. They, they just... They, <laughs> They just don't work. Somebody so crack, open to abuse, it's ridiculous. Somebody will crack the ballot box and it just doesn't work. But congrats to Grosjean for being the true winner of Driver of the Day, which makes perfect sense. Sorry, Harry Anto, we just don't like you very much around here. <laughs> right, that will just about wrap it up for this episode of Motorsport 101. Like I said, we'll talk MotoGP on next week's show. I'll see if I'll see if has got the episode off. I might, might be able to pull him in for a taping because he's my biking cousin, so to speak. Um... Thanks very much for listening. Uh, you, can, you can follow us as always on Twitter. Me at Harrison101HD, Johnson at AJ underscore Bumblesports, and Ryan King at Ryan Eric King. That's two Ks. By the way, his, uh, his phone goes off in the background because he's, that's clearly his follow account is blowing up as a result of this episode. We'll be, we'll, we'll be back next week to talk MotoGP and probably not much else because it's, it's just going to be a quiet week anyway. But we'll see what happens. Um, I th- also, I want to say a big thanks to everyone that's been watching on YouTube. We've got over 10,000 YouTube views now, as well as over 4,000 players on SoundCloud. You guys are fantastic. Please keep supporting the show. You guys are fantastic in that regard. And also, on Patreon, I'm very proud to announce the show is now 100% funded by you, the listeners of the show. So massive well thank you to everybody that supported us on Patreon so far. We are now literally self-sufficient. We can now actually... St- you know, take, do the show about worrying about making money. So thank you for believing in us and our product. We do genuinely appreciate it so, so much. And also we've put a new goal on Patreon. Now, if we go to the to point where we get to $90 a month in fan support, we are going to live stream episodes of the podcast. So yeah, we could actually take you guys comments and feedback live as we take which would be pretty crazy as well in its own right but we want to see if there's more of a proof of concept for it first so that's why we've got we've set a bigger patreon target for it if we get to that to that goal we uh, that is what we will do from here on in but uh, again a massive thank you to everyone supporting us uh we again we cut we can't do this without you i want to say big thanks obviously to, to ryan and having fair big support and shout out to zara as well i'm not going to mention her because she does all our podcast artwork and she's fantastic as well so um massive thanks to everybody involved in the podcast to this point going forward and uh thank you very much for listening and until next time i've been andre harrison he's been ryan king the other guy's been adam johnson we'll catch you guys next time bye Get po- buddy big boat face to the Arctic, please. <laughs> <laughs> Harry Anto. <laughs> Harry Anto. Actually, that was more worthy of a bullshit chant. <laughs>